Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 251. I require a mirror and something dead. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 9 of Angel, Harm's Way, and the premiere of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Merle, the Friends of English Magic. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So we're starting with Angel, Harm's Way. Um, mm-hmm. Fun little title for a fun little episode. And wanted sure. to start with the premise um, and kind of say up front, um, this is famous last words, you know, as these things go. Um <laughs> We were, we were, we've never said this before. We've never said this before and then completely gone, but at, at the risk of, you know, proving myself a fool, I will say that um, we agreed that the plot is fairly straightforward in this episode. And there's really only one plot line. You know, sometimes what takes up time is not even that the plots are complicated, it's just that there's, multiple different storylines overlapping and you have to sort of service different characters you don't really have that in this episode this is the harmony episode and and the plot i think is pretty basic in the sense of like it it's a mystery that you're with her and you're kind of working to solve it and it doesn't really deviate from that so um my my prediction is that maybe this doesn't require the deepest longest analysis ever however that is not to say that it's not a good and strong episode you know like sure you know sometimes i think we've said this before there are those ones that are fun to watch then the ones that are most fun to watch aren't necessarily always the most complicated or even the deepest ones um yeah. And I think this is one of those ones that is just like kind of a good hang. Like it's just like a fun, you yeah. know, 45 minutes of, you know, a peek into Harmony's life and her right. world. So we'll see kind of how, you know, long it takes us to go through all the plot points. But up front, I think the more probably the most important thing to discuss here is really just the premise itself um, doing for harmony what you pointed out was done for xander with the zeppo and then um again with like superstar and you know the the episodes that focused on jonathan or andrew you know taking yeah you know xander's obviously not a minor character but taking a character who's to one extent or another kept on the periphery and putting them center stage and seeing what the kind of day in a life is like um I, yeah. I don't think this one is as concept heavy you know obviously like i think jonathan and andrew were more marginal in a sense and so it's you have more the sense of like a tertiary character or like you know being kind of raised to center stage and even though xander's central the whole idea of there being an adventure going on in the background that he's not privy to kind of makes him feel like that kind of minor character. Like sure. that I mean so that's kind of what's 
genius right, about... Xander go, goes and gets the donuts while we save the world. Right. And that's kind of what makes the Zeppo sort of the genius thing that it is, is not that it focuses on Xander, but that Xander misses out on whatever the earth shattering apocalyptic plot is. Um, whereas like this one doesn't necessarily do quite that. Like Harmony's not unaware of what's going on around her. They're not unaware of her. It's just that I guess we were talking about point of view recently with like books and TV shows and kind of who's, who's written, like who, who's telling the story. And this yeah. isn't this isn't Andrew. This isn't a direct to address camera where she's making a documentary. But if there's a camera here, it's just positioned over her shoulder so that it's you know it's following her rather than normally the camera would sort of follow our main characters around. Mm -hmm. um, but she's not uninvolved in the main story. You know, it's just that her concerns of what what's going to be the catering. And, you know, warming up Angel's morning cup of blood and all that sort of thing get attention in a way that they normally wouldn't. Yeah. No, I agree. I, and I, so um, you mentioned the Zeppo and Superstar, um, and Andrews is, of course, um, storyteller from yeah. Buffy yeah. season seven. Um, and I was trying to think, I'm like, are there any others we're missing? Um, maybe like a Dawn episode. Hmm. Um, I, I feel like there was a couple, but I can't think of, I would, like maybe like the Halloween one where she, you know, goes parking in cars with vampires um, or right, something right. like that. Um, yeah, no, I, so I agree that like, like I do feel like Harmony fits somewhere in between uh you know, the Zeppo and, or, or Harm's Way fits somewhere between the Zeppo and Superstar. Cause, cause you're right. Like Superstar is totally elevating Jonathan to like an actual, like, and, and like purposely so like Jane Espenson was like, Oh, I always liked the idea of like having this really background character. Not that we hadn't seen Jonathan before, but he really had no mm -hmm. presence or characterization other than just as this like guy who gets saved a lot you know right, right um so like that was totally raising him up the zeppo obviously we know we you know and like xander and um you know at that point like mid-season three like we've seen him quite a bit he's a solid part of the scooby team like you know whatever but like is still sort of like not clear entirely of his role and so whatever so i feel like harmony is kind of at this point in between those two right like She's never been, I mean, I guess she was a regular in that we saw her like in the first three seasons, like at school and stuff, but she was really a background character. Mm. All of those, you know, first three seasons, obviously comes back with her minions and stuff in season four. Um, and like bit, you know, um, bit role in, in Angel early on um, when she reconnects with Cordy and we find out she's a vampire and stuff. Um, so like, she's not completely unknown, like Jonathan and mm -hmm. being raised up, but she's certainly not the level of Xander, you know, part of the team. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she certainly wasn't part of Angel Investigation. She is part of Wolfram and Hart, but like, 
you know, she's just the secretary or, you know, whatever, or the receptionist or whatever she is. Like, there's not that sense of her being at the the inner circle, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, so, yeah, so that would, that's just my agreeing that, like, I feel like she's, yeah. like, that this episode is kind of, kind of between the two. It's, she, it's not, like, raising her up in that way that Storyteller did, or, um, well, Storyteller as well, but uh, Superstar did. Mm-hmm. And it's not, like, focusing on one member of the team in the way that mm-hmm. Zeppo did, but mm-hmm. it's kind of pulling elements of both, mm-hmm. which I think works. I think for mm-hmm. her position and, you know, what she does, like, I think it does work. And I think, so you, you mentioned it not being as concept heavy. I think that's why you can kind of get away in both mm-hmm. cases. Because I feel like with Xander, you have to have a really, like, I don't know, what's the, um, well, what's the other term for that, like, concept, like, the, the high concept, you know, idea right, of, like, right. the episode being, like, like really concept-driven, yeah, and yeah. not that there's not characterization and stuff, there obviously is, but that that's, like, the thing that drives the episode is, like, mm-hmm. okay, what if Xander, like, ran into a group of school guys who were zombies? Like, okay, mm-hmm. well, let's run with that. Um, I mean, this has that, but there is a sort of mundanity, mm-hmm. I think, um, and we can, like, even get into some of the plot here of, like, the daily routine and the corporate orientation video. Mm-hmm. And, like, one of the things that I like about this episode is that I feel like with all the Wolfram and Hart stuff that we've seen so far in this, you know, first third or so of the season, um, is that, like, we're seeing all, we're seeing all the interruptions of the angel investigations coming in and taking over. And so we're seeing all, we're, yeah. we're like getting the highlight reel, right? Like we're getting the executive summary of what goes on at Wolfram and Hart on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. This is like, okay, let's dig down into that soft underbelly and, you know, find out what's really going on in like the cafeteria and the break room. Right. And, you know, what I think is interesting is that I feel like this kind of thing, the, gunning for you know the boss's secretary mm-hmm. is totally the like norm at wolfram and hart and has been for centuries like <laughs> like you, you totally i mean we've seen it right we saw you know lila beheading people right mm-hmm. so like there's there's a sense that like this sort of like literal cutthroat you know competition yeah. between like i don't know the executive assistant pool or whatever right. is like totally uh, a thing. And, and just cause like there's new leadership doesn't necessarily mean that the undercurrent has shifted at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's different in that it's pointing out like what's not changed about the place and what sure. kind of still exists and what's like, I mean, there's always that, um, you know, you get like the onion style, like area man sits at <laughs> desk for eight hours without doing work kind of right. premise to it. But right. that's funny because like we all know people, maybe some of us have done that, you know, and right. like and so that's what makes it funny is the complete and utter mundanity of the satire. And right. so I feel like there's an element of this with the, you know, obvious fantasy yeah. trappings to it. Um that's what makes it kind of really fun and kind of it's just a normal day in the life of a working woman and right, right. you know in the big city kind of thing and and it totally 
works out. And, and, but also shows that, like, I mean, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking. I'll, I promise I'll let you talk and get your thoughts here, too. But, but, like, I also You're like good. it because it's, um, it is that thing to show that, like, like, there is a sense of survivorship. Sur- mm. sur- I, I, I melded the word survival and survivorship survivorness to harmony that I think we've seen all along with her that like as maybe vapid and like Cordelia was smart even though she was like selfish and whatever I don't ever get the sense that we thought that harmony got the best grades or anything like Mm. she had all of the selfishness and maybe you know uh vanity that Cordy had without maybe also quite getting the same grades that Cordy did mm-hmm. <laughs> um but there is a level of or just plain kind of wits even if like I don't even know that Cordelia's grades were stellar but but she's well, she's intelligent despite that you know like even if that's not where her focus was sure you can see like her you know I... I mean, I'd have to. I'll yeah, have I don't. To go back I don't remember. Buffy, honestly, but, um, don't remember if we ever get like reference to Cordy's academic record. Thought, but I always thought that we did get a sense that she did well academically, and, and, that, and, that, and that was you kind probably of, remember better than I do. So, and that yeah. that was kind of one of the things that said her like like so that you couldn't just dismiss her as mm-hmm. a vapid, you know, ignorant, mm-hmm. airhead kind of person that like she was popular and she was pretty and vain and, you know, arrogant and whatever, and also smart and intelligent. Right, and right. well, I mean, smart and intelligent mean the same thing. Shows you how intelligent I am, but like, you know, and witty and capable and like all of these other things mm-hmm. that like, you don't necessarily associate with cheerleaders and sure. you know, whatever, yeah. or yeah. at least stereotypically, you know, whatever. Um, and that's absolutely true. Like you do, I, yeah. And I don't remember for sure. And you probably would be able to find that quicker than me. Like, do we ever get reference to her academic record? But yeah, one way I, or the uh, one way or the other, that comes across. I I know? can't. I don't remember if we do hear like what sort of grade she gets. I guess that that could totally just be an assumption on my part that she is smart and so like we just can sort of assume that she does well in school mm-hmm. like certainly better than xander does right sure. like yeah <laughs> um maybe she's not the scholar that willow is but like yeah she does good enough and like yeah good enough that she gets into good colleges and not just like because her daddy pays money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and that kind of thing i mean she yeah. doesn't end up going to college but like right but i your your point being the this is going to sound dismissive of harmony. I don't mean it to, but like those things that distinguish Cordy that elevate her above what you could write her off as, you know, as the stereotypes harmony was more when they were friends in high school, more true to the stereotype. Like if, if, you know, if, if Cordy was the one, was the example of, the person who rises above what you think what they are. She's contrasted by her friends in her immediate popular girl circle who seem to fit into those, you know, biases a little more neatly. Mm -hmm. And it's not really until 
she goes vamp, that harmony, just by nature of being an undead creature, bucks like the stereotypes. It's like that, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that like we disliked her. Like there's a lot of stuff when Harmony was just a student that was fun about her. Um, sure. You know, but like, yeah, I don't mean she to was more like Harmony is un unsympathetic or unlike, I mean, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Well, no, yeah, just to say that like, I think she, one way or another, they certainly do get across that Harmony was more typical of the kind of like kind of is what she seems to be on the surface you know Cordy's early kind of arc was you know probing the depths of how she was more complicated than what she appeared whereas like I think Harmony kind of is what she appears you know she's a more mm -hmm. she if you want to call that shallow or if you want to call that straightforward or honest or whatever it is it's more what you see is what you get um, you know, she doesn't have quite the same layers. Um, and even now, like, I don't think she's terribly, it's not that even that she's terribly complicated. It's just that her vampire nature clashes with her, you know, kind of, I don't know, working gal appearance. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I forgot how we even got off onto that little tangent, but um Oh, and I was going to say like uh just from what you're saying about the kind of mundanity of the episode and the concerns and everything like you know, this this season 5 continuing to have a stronger, I think returning to a stronger metaphor of the week kind of thing, but, but the concerns of like working in, you know, an adult corporate atmosphere, um, kind of continuing with that. Like, yes, it comes to literal cut, cutting of throats and bloodshed, but like you were saying, just the relatability of a competitive working environment where, people feel envious of each other's positions and are sort of out to advance their own career and resent the people who they feel like have gotten promoted unfairly or have kind of jumped ahead of them in line or whatever it is. Um, it's just that at Wolfram and Hart, that leads to like actual fighting and murder rather than... <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. you know, metaphorical, but. Um, all right. So in terms of like the plot itself, we, I mean, we talked plenty just about the premise, which is kind of where I figured most of the meat was. Um, wanted to kind of go through uh, Harmony's like morning and sort of her daily routine, um, which we kind of touched on already. I don't know if there's any specific details to pull out from just kind of going through what's the day in a life of harmony. Um, the, the be your best thing on the mirror makes me think of be best, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> and it has the same kind of beyond like the awkwardness of like be best. I don't know if that's like a sentence. Um, 
<laughs> it is that kind of the shallowness of that message like I, or I don't even know that it's shallow, just like the simplicity of it, you know, like this is Harmony's sort of words of wisdom, you know, her mantra to start every day, like, you know, I don't know. And be your best doesn't even necessarily be, or it doesn't necessarily mean doing good in the sense of angel investigations or helping the helpless it's sort of a be the best version of you kind of message because right, it's, be it's, it's a slightly kind of amoral statement and like it doesn't necessarily have any relationship to good or evil it's just a life it's kind of a self-affirming whatever you are you know be the best version of that so that mm -hmm. kind of seems to be harmony is sort of i don't know her mantra at the moment um sure although as she says later i i may, i mean maybe we can get into this now like i don't think I, I think at the end of this episode we have a clearer idea than we did of what is harmony's relationship with the good and evil dichotomy um mm -hmm. Because she is that slightly amoral character in that she's sort of been one of the villains in the past and had minions and sort of made a made a pass at doing the kind of villain thing. Um, and then, but in here, we kind of get the idea that she is actually trying. It's not just a matter of, oh, she's another one of these sort of compromises they've made another like bad guy who works for wolfram and hart you do get the sense that she's making an effort to reform and doing it without a soul which you have to give her genuine credit for that i mean angel and spike are other two big vampire characters certainly you know like it it was really only with the souls that they were able to restrain themselves and live sort of to a moral standard. I mean, I guess you give Spike credit for seeking his soul out, but you kind of don't get the sense that they were able to make a lot of headway without their souls. Whereas, you know, or, the, or a chip in Spike's case, something to restrain them. Um, whereas like Harmony seems to be doing it just from her own willpower. Like she's just gone cold turkey and made a decision. And so far it seems to be so good. She hasn't really been, we haven't seen her like fall back into the villain like temptations of that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I think it's easy to overlook the significance of that. You know, because she's likable and you don't think of her as a big bad, that doesn't right. mean that she's not sort of being, I don't know, I think it's, it, it's kind of a big deal that she's just able to work and hold this job and not give in to those impulses. Yeah, I mean, we also see like, you know, they're going around like, doing blood testing right like yeah well but, yes she's motivated yeah 
but I think, yeah, and I'm sure there are those who fail, right? And maybe it's, um, I, I agree. Like there's, there's something of a testament to her willpower to want to, you know, keep her job and, and, you know, yeah, she's tried the like evil vampire thing. It didn't quite work out well for her. She's not really much of a leader per se. Um, and so there is that sense of just like, you know, your early twenties trying to like find your way in the world. And, you know, she seems to have done it. Not to say that she'll always be here like forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say till she grows old, but like she's a vampire. So like she won't, she could be maybe, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, maybe the job security is great, but like, there is a sense that she has sort of found her spot where she seems, I wouldn't say fulfilled, which was the first thought that popped into my mind, but like, at least like, she, she seems to know like, or she seems to have found like what it is she wants to do and where she thinks she could be fulfilled. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, whether like Angel and them, like acknowledge her and stuff is a different story like that. But like, at least like where she is, like she's capable of doing the job. She's um, got a certain amount of begrudging respect. Um, At least, I mean, the kind that, you know, could get you dusted, but you know, still at least seems to like hold some kind of, um, you know, position that, like, others, you know, envy or whatever. Um, But also, like, it's not, like, above her ability or capability to do. Like, Mm -hmm. and even, I don't mean that, like, oh, well, like, she's just a secretary and so that's fine or whatever. Like, I mean that in, like, look at all the stuff that she has to go through, like, knocking people out and hiding them in closets and, you know, taking care of bodies and kind of doing all like the little things that like don't get noticed, but are totally required to like Mm -hmm. stay where she is, whether technically part of the job or not, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I feel like that those are also the kind of things that like, especially like for support roles like that. And I mean, you may have, better insight into this than I do um given your own job history like where although I I was an administrative assistant for a while I will say um but yeah just where like a a common complaint might be you know so and so doesn't know how much I actually put into doing a good job here like Mm -hmm. you know you might hand them a packet of papers that they take three minutes to thumb through and like to them that's like three minutes of their day and it took you like four days to put that together (laughs) because you're contacting people and I don't know typing things up or summarizing and and making getting clarification or you know tracking down the missing bit of information and like all of these things that go into putting together Mm -hmm. a report or a you know whatever that maybe they're not unappreciative of, but just have no idea 
how much work actually goes into it. And mm-hmm. so I feel like that's some of what we see here um, with Harmony. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, and that's true of her regular tasks, you know, the kind of daily things of like Angel doesn't appreciate the politics of something as simple as getting him his mug of blood in the morning like that that's a a little landmine field that she has to sort of navigate so there's just sort of the complications for something that seems very routine and simple to him but then there's also the things where she tries to go above and beyond like when she orders the camel for the meal um you know and even if it was the wrong decision um just the idea of her taking the initiative to do research into what might these guests like to eat and what's the sort of symbolic value of that and um you know like that's the something that isn't required of you on a daily basis but kind of demonstrates harmony making an effort to contribute to the group at a higher level um Sure. And, and in some ways that's backfires for her, you know, like if, if she does that and gets it wrong, it's worse for her than if she had just simply done what she was told in the most literal way, you know? So it's sort of like, should she take the risk of like, there's a high risk, high reward situation here, you know, of like, okay, PETA and hummus you know, it sort of was probably the safer choice in the end, but we can kind of see that she's not interested in playing it safe. She's trying to, she's kind of ambitious to get into that inner circle. Um, And to not, not purely selfishly, but also like somewhat selfishly, but, you know, also to kind of make a real contribution to feel that kind of sense that you're doing something worthwhile and your contribute, you you know, your contribution is making a difference. Um, You know, like maybe she would be the one to get the credit for the good relations between these demon clans because she went out of her way to find the delicacy that they really like to eat. Um, But of course it kind of blows up in her face. Um, And the, the effort is not appreciated. Angel does seem to, and I kind of want to transition here into like, what's the status of the ongoing relations between the Wolfram and Hart sort of executive leadership with its sort of grunt workers and its employees. Yeah. Um, Angel doesn't really want, seem to want those kinds of contributions from people outside of his inner circle. You know, I think Angel kind of wants people that are do what they're told. And and not really distinguish themselves for good or for evil, you know, like, it, you know, clearly the evil ones who make a name for themselves are getting their contracts terminated and sometimes their heads detached. Um, and then, you know, I think like there's the, you know, Harmony is the example of someone who's trying to kind of go above and beyond for a good cause. But that annoys Angel too. Like it's sort of, she's just in the way when she does that. He kind of wants her to, you know, just order the lunch and get a normal meal. And 
anticipate his needs. That's my favorite line when you're supposed to, he says it like it's so simple. He says, Harmony, you're supposed to answer phones, make appointments and anticipate my needs. Um, and I think like that is a very relatable thing of the boss or the executive who wants a mind reader, you know, um, you know, you do the best job when you know exactly what I want before I've asked you. Um, you know, and there are certainly bosses like that. Um, and my, I might have had a few. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a interesting, very like recognizable spin on Angel's character. Um, you know, and that's with the good employees, you know, they still have this ongoing issue of, you know, the employees that are uh, murderous and villainous and, you know, and those ones, they have a zero tolerance policy for violence. Um, and he sort of beheads them in his office when that happens. Right. <laughs> um, for, for morale. For morale, for the good of morale. And, you know, it, it, again, I guess the question is, to what extent does that backfire on him? Because I think if Harmony felt like he was a listening ear, maybe she would have gone to him when she first discovered that right. she was framed. But the, the fear of his retribution and the kind of very black and white way that he's viewing his employees, you know, leads her to cover it up for a while. Um, you know, which in the end kind of only really puts everyone in danger longer. But, um, you know, I, it's that thing of, is he really doing his own, you know, is, is his policy best served by having this zero tolerance? Or, you know, might there be a way to encourage people to reform? Um, like if you find yourself in his situation, say something about it rather than, well, if we find something out, we're just going to kill you right here and there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty common in companies or organizations or whatever to, for um, managers, executives, whomever, to, you know, say they have like an open door policy or, or whatever, mm. but... I think I think that's believed the 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 value or the um validity of such a policy is maybe believed more by some employees than others, right? Like I mean, you know, simply saying that like anyone can come to you anytime doesn't necessarily mean that people will necessarily believe that if they come to you, you'll actually hear them out or that things will change or that they won't get in trouble. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so there's definitely that aspect to it. Um, like going into your boss's office to tell them about problems here in Angel could literally get your head bit off, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or chopped off. Like, I think that's a pretty common um 
you know, probably far too common, uh, disjointed uh, sense of perception between, right. you know, man- management and, well, and uh, employees. It's not, it's not an exact parallel because I think there's a difference between victim and perpetrator of like an offense, but it, it also makes me think of like what, what in this whole Me Too movement, people say of like, why don't you come forward about things that happen to you because maybe I'd get fired. That's why. Like if it's a situation where it's, it's in the company's best interest to not deal with something, then yeah, like coming forward is as dangerous for you as just keeping it to yourself. I mean, the parallel isn't quite right because in that case, those people are victims of something rather than the person that did the wrong thing. I think, harmony um or these other you know these other demons that are getting terminated from Wolfram and Hart are closer to the abusers than they are to the victims you know they're kind of sure outing yeah. their own but there's like there's something there about you know executives who deal with a problem by firing the person who comes forward to come terminating yeah yeah yeah. terminating (laughs) in some sense or other um right the whoever it is that comes forward to report something and which doesn't fix the problem you know it sort of hushes up the problem um it's a short-term solution it's not a long-term one um and if there's systemic abuse or systemic violence or problems or whatever it is like it's probably better to deal with what's the root of the problem rather than okay we're going to deal with this one person who we happen to know about an incident you know um right so well yeah. and and also the belief that like what they might already be doing is dealing with the problem like oh well we're already you know rooting out the bad actors when in yeah. fact like that's maybe partially true they're rooting out some bad actors but like they're not necessarily taking out yeah you know like you said like what's the actual root cause of of the problem and it is there's you know here for wolfram and hart there's certainly a cultural problem of you know years and years of saying hey you know this is how you get how do you get ahead you chop ahead you know like mm-hmm. you 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 literally take out the person whose job you want and then a spot opens up and yeah it's yours yeah um or you know it goes to the most you know vicious of competitors right um in one sense or another um well and and is it the case that if this incentivizes people to just hide their evil rather than actually reform or you know, leave or whatever. Um, are you only getting rid of the most clumsy, obvious cases? And right. maybe, maybe this is going to encourage Wolfram and Hart's most evil ones to stay hidden. You know, like you might be getting rid of all the bumbling demons, and while the really like effective ones are sort of just able to conceal themselves a little more subtly. So it doesn't even necessarily mean that they're rid of the people that they're worried about. Um, it, it potentially could give them like a false 
security about the situation that they're in. Well, and and so that's precisely what happens with Harmony, right? Is that the way that she gets set up is, you know, it's not the obvious thing, right? It's it, and she knows this. Like I think that's where she um, she does excel. It, it is that like she knows that she can't just go to Angel because of the way that everything looks like, right? Or I mean, I don't know. I think we'd like to believe that Angel would have done the right thing, but we don't necessarily know. It's not like... Yeah. I mean, again, we know that Harmony did have minions and considered herself evil for a time. Like, I don't know that, like, we would necessarily believe that Angel would believe her 100%, right, out of the blue. Um, Yeah, and he he tolerates her at best. I don't get the sense that he's too sympathetic to her struggles and her situation and yeah like if she put a toe out of line she might be you know as you know like her position as precarious as anybody else's yeah um so another another imperfect analogy that comes to mind is um so like i follow my daughter's various social media accounts and you know Sometimes there are things that get posted that maybe as the father of a 13-year-old, I I would rather not see posted, <laughs> you know. But there's a certain sense of, like, if I say on every little thing that she does, like, is that just mean she's going to go create some new social media account that has, that I don't know about and that I can't access and, and sort of monitor and see? And so... Right, you have to you know, pick your battles you, a little bit. Yeah, you, you kind of look and you see and say, okay, like, I'm going to let that swear word go. But when maybe there's someone, you know, commenting in very, you know, bullying language or something, and I'm going to step in and be like, okay, let's talk about, you know, how we can resolve the situation or, you know, whatever. So I... Again, that's not a perfect analogy to the sort of the work situation and the stuff going on here, but I do like I do think that that's like there's definitely a similar thing there of you know like you were saying how you how how yeah is coming at it like sort of full force blunt just taking care of the visible problems and not actually resolving anything but just pushing it deeper and and making people more devious or more. Um, you know, creative in how they mm-hmm. go about doing the things that they've been doing all along. Right, and right. Like, we'll keep doing what we're doing. We're just going to hide it better. Um, is, right. yeah, that's what it... Which I think lends itself to, like, even worse, like, violations in some... I mean, so looking at the Harmony thing here, like, you know, may, maybe before it would have just been, like, oh, we're going to have a cat fight and try to dust each other in the, you know, break room. Mm-hmm. I mean, it ends up with a fight in the break room at the end. Um, anyway, but, like, that's after, like, all of the, you know, killing someone and framing, um, you know, framing Harmony and kind of, you know, trying to do, do like, these, like, worse thing versus the the much more like straightforward like when you sit down in the chair uh you know axe will chop your head off (laughs) like right 
not that that's any better, but at least it's like, hey, that's just the one Wolverman Hard employee that got killed. It's not like innocent guys at the bar, you know, trying to pick up someone mm-hmm. who like are part of the body count now. Um, maybe not a lot better, but some better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, you know, what's the, on the other hand, like the argument I'm sure would be, well, I mean, we can't just let the obvious cases go either because then people are just going to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. whatever they want. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that it's necessarily right. not the, the answer. That's the dilemma that, that Angel's in is right. how, what is the ratio of, you know, strictness to leniency to get the best, you know. To not just have to deal with evil as it's as it's done, but maybe even prevent it um, mm-hmm. is sort of, I think, the ultimate goal is to have a place where none of your employees are sacrificing virgins or whatever, you know, that yeah. that guy did, um, you know, and right. I think that's that's an ongoing uh you know, thing anyway that they have to kind of keep working at and see what kind of gets the best results. Um, I mean, the good news I think for Wolfram and Hart is that given the high turnover rate, like they can probably like start if they hiring do a better screening, the people that <laughs> yeah, better screening yeah. job on yeah. the new new people. Yeah, um, yeah, they hire they they inherited a lot of uh, long term employees that they would not have considered. So maybe it's a temporary problem anyway, but, um, all right. So let's move on to Fred and Harmony, um, and their sort of little outing. I I mean, I don't think there's the most kind of important thing I want to pull out is just like this friendship, which is struck up, which seems to be a genuine one. Like they, you know, Harmony obviously is distractible, um, but but not insincere. I don't think, and and Fred the same thing. Like they don't, they're not two characters that you would necessarily think have a ton in common, but it seems like they both, you know, really enjoyed having another female friend to go out for a drink with. Um, and again, as we've said in one of the frustrating things of losing Cordy as a character was just the lack of, you know, women in the main cast. So it's nice to have Harmony kind of promoted to friend of somebody. Um, It gives a different dynamic and it's nice to not have the women always sort of at each other's throats. Um, You know, like to show that there's like genuine fondness between them and it's not a competitive thing or I mean they're so different that it's kind of they wouldn't be competing for the same sorts of things anyway but um you know scenes of women getting along is a good thing there's not enough of that (laughs) um in just in fiction in general um so yeah I don't know if there's much else to say about that but um, yeah, I mean, I guess just, I mean, it's very, it's kind of early in their friendship, so just, we'll keep an eye on it, I'm sure. Well, and we'll see how long or if it lasts. Like, 
this was a one, you know, a one-off thing. It, it, it could be that Harmony, you know, this was the end of her foray into being part of that main circle. And I guess it remains to be seen if Fred continues to sort of bring her further into the main group or reach out to her for like that kind of companionship. So. Um, yeah. I mean, knocking your friend out and stuffing her in a closet with a bunch of other people doesn't maybe put oh, you on it's, good footing. It's nothing that all the angel team haven't done to each other at one point. or That's now. true. That's true. <laughs> That's hardly um, that's hardly the worst betrayal, you know, my, that's happened among the team. What was um Wesley's line? My my throat was slit and my friends abandoned me. Right. <laughs> like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So fair enough. Although he like nobody remembers that. This except is true. Angel. This is true. But I mean I think I think Fred is sympathetic to Harmony's reasons, you know, that like she didn't hurt her really. She was just trying to clear her name, you know. I don't think anybody disputes that she didn't go about it the best way. But um but I don't know that Fred like holds it against her necessarily. Um her motive was fairly which is sort of you know Wesley's betrayal too. I mean a more severe version, but like again it was one that was done for what he thought was noble intention. So. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know that that's a deal breaker is all I'm saying. Um, so, okay. There's plot stuff, you know, it's like, I don't know that we need to go through bit by bit the sort of mystery of how, Harmony goes yeah. about piecing the different things together. Um, no. you this know. is the Seinfeld yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, part. yada. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, funny kind of reveals of it's not the the blood guy that, you know, there's the little misdirection of it's not that guy that she pissed off. It was someone else that she pissed off. And it's somebody who, like, she bumped into in the first five minutes of the episode. So you kind of have a little, if you're really paying attention, you could see sure. that, you know, there's this character in the background who's sort of being literally and metaphorically stepped on and who feels kind of resentment for that. Yeah. Um, Chekhov's vampire. Chekhov's vampire. Right. And she turns out to be a vampire. So it, it, you get a pretty evenly matched um, battle out of it. Um, and, you know, not that she gets credit for this, but, you know, Harmony does end up inadvertently stopping the war between the demon tribes and she sort of sacrifices Tamika on the, on the conference table, um, which happened earlier than she intended, but seems to have worked out for the best. Um, anything else about like, I mean, we kind of talked about Angel's reaction already. I don't think, if anything, he's less, uh, he wasn't thrilled with Harmony as an assistant to begin with. And this just put her even more on his bad list, I think. Um, not enough to behead her, but he's sort of impatient and 
you know. Is there anything else about like Harmony's status within the group? No, I mean, did this, is she, is, did this, does she have status in the group? Well, again, and I guess that's, this like, that's a long-term question is, did this set her back or promote her in the eyes of the team, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it set her back. I mean, I think, I think it made Angel and the others notice her, mm -hmm. which is like more than they maybe did before. Sure. Like just just acknowledging that she does more than sit at a desk and right. answer phones. Like, right. I think in that sense, like there there's a estimation that didn't. Like mm -hmm. I don't even think that they like estimated her low before. Mm -hmm. It was just it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, in that sense, I would say yes, she's you know. Right improved it in that i mean she she hasn't improved her right. the um the way she's perceived has been improved right the, there's no um, such thing as bread as bad press she's at least she's like on their radar well but now. i don't even think i don't think what happened is would be considered bad press i like i don't i think it's well i mean I, I don't know how much to attribute it to, like, things worked out okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, because, you know, so she kills, uh, what did you call her before? Sambuca? Sambuca? No, uh, that's what, <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. Um, you know, she kills her and, like, the demon conference goes well. And so, okay, everything, like, I think there is a certain element to that. But I also feel like we get that with a lot of interactions with Angel and team. Like, I don't think that's unique the harmony here like there's a lot of like okay we did a lot of stuff and like hey it worked out in the end i'm mm -hmm. not quite sure why or how but yeah. okay and we'll like it, even yeah. like like because angel did the same thing right like when he was supposed i forget the name of the demon but he was supposed to meet like the the demon tribe and it's like he kills them and guns like ah it's okay they like you know when you make a strong opening statement mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like oh okay so things didn't go off as bad as they could have been, even though he, like, killed, you know, one of the demons he was supposed to be, be meeting with. Mm -hmm. Like, in this case, it's like, okay, like, these demons wanted, like, a sacrifice for their troubles or whatever, and it's like, okay, so kill... Uh, incidentally, Harmony just happens to be fighting someone, you know, brings her in and kills her in front of them, and, oh, okay, cool, we're satisfied, like, with, with your sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Like, the, you know, okay, so things went well. I mean, I think there's also, I do think that once everything, like, okay, so that worked out, but then it's like, okay, Harmony, why were you fighting and, you know, killing, you know, a fellow vampire here? And it's like, well, once things come out, like, and they realize kind of what she's been going through, and that maybe there is, you know, other stuff going on than they can just take care of by a few beheadings in Angel's office, then I think that does give her at least somewhat respect, you know, at least a modicum of respect or or at least awareness that, like, she's not just like the others and that maybe she is trying, even if she's still maybe a little annoying and vain and, you mm -hmm. know, doesn't, um, 
always like do things quite the right way mm -hmm. um, but none of them sure yeah again um, that doesn't necessarily separate her from anybody else on the team um but i think i do think there's still i think there's that's the perception though is that like it's okay for them to mess up but right like right. like there is that sense of like when other people mess up it's because they're evil and and maybe that's a flaw in their character like just or just as a team or maybe that's like maybe that's just true of any group of people who are friends it's like well we we can forgive ourselves for lots right. of stuff right but like if someone else does something mm -hmm. then it means they're evil or bad or you know right whatever and there's certainly something to be said for you know walking a day in harmony shoes kind of thing mm -hmm. yep yeah and i think any mistakes were bad choices she makes are not out of the realm of the sort of mistakes and bad choices that angel and team make on a weekly basis um but yeah she she's in the not we you know and they're not viewed with the same sort of forgiveness um yeah. all right so let's finish we actually kind of went the whole hour let's finish with um see i shouldn't have said anything Let's finish with Spike and Harmony. Um, mostly just to establish that Spike made, you know, a very kind of, I don't know if half-hearted is the right word, but, you know, he made an attempt to leave and go back to Buffy that um, lasts yeah. all of this episode. And he turns, you know, his uh, viper somewhere around in the desert and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of comes down to his whole thing of uh, leaving on a high note. You know, how can I top an exit like that, he says. Um, which actually, I feel like there's a slight um, meta commentary there. I don't know if, like, this will make sense. But, like, if you kind of think of Spike's storyline in Buffy as a completed thing, like even though it's the same character and he's moved over, he had an ending, you know? And I feel like there is a, a literal sense of the writers not wanting to take away the power of that ending, you know? Like if we send him back to Buffy, that continues sort of his Buffy arc. And whereas like, even though he is the same character, it's still, there's continuity between the two there is a sense of separation and and maybe them not wanting to invalidate the kind of heroism of that last sort of final statement of his. Um, whereas like over here in Angel, as a main character in a different show, it's a slightly different thing. So, I mean, obviously, and also he's in this show now and they want to keep him around and don't want to. Right. Get rid of him there's like, like there's, the production liter reasons. there's literally yeah. that but there's i guess even the the fact that we even have to address this question you know of like mm -hmm. why doesn't he just go to buffy because we've established that that's who he loves and who in some senses he'd rather be with and be like he does not like angel so what is his motive to stay here we have to 
if we're going to have him around, that's a question we have to address. And I think, so I think there's a sense in which he's somewhat speaking for the creative team when he says, you know what, I had like a really good exit. My story over there is kind of done, but there's a story over here. You know, there's, you know, this is like kind of where he needs to be for the time being. Um, sure. So. Yeah, no, I think all that's right. I don't, I don't know that I have a lot to say. Well, and, and, and just to finish that, just especially since it certainly seemed to me like that was kind of a large part of having him as that kind of ghostly presence was like even giving him a reason for being here in the first place. So if they take that away, then they have to kind of justify like why if Spike is kind of corporeal again, sure does he stick around? And so there has to be an internal well, motive, not just like something physically keeping him here, but he has to have a, a personality reason to not want to just pack up and go to Buffy. So, yeah. Although, so yes, I agree. So we have that, but there's a lot of places he could go and not go to Buffy. So like, I still think the question of why does he stay at Wolfram and Hart or in LA or wherever. Yeah. It's still somewhat specifically. Also just a, just throwing this out there. I'm not saying we'll ever get an answer. Were there no potential slayers in LA when Buffy activated everyone? Um, I mean, we don't know, obviously, but like, what leads you to think that there aren't? I'm just saying we haven't seen any. Like, we know that there's. I, I'm just saying, would wouldn't we have maybe heard by now if there were? I don't know. Yeah, just just a thought. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just assume they are kind of everywhere. Um, and I don't know if Angel and team are aware of the of the activation. Um, I don't think we've well, had confirmation of that. Like, did Buffy tell them, hey, I mean, FYI, we, you know? I think I think. You're right. We don't have confirmation of that. I don't think it's a stretch because we know that Angel and Buffy have been in contact for right. sure. And that seems like a pretty big like point to not, not mention. have yeah. relayed. Yeah. Um, but you're right. We don't have an explicit mention on Angel. Right. Um, yeah. Just a thought. Um, but yeah, that would be, as far as Spike goes, it would be like, okay, like, like we've gotten his decision not to go to Buffy, but he cannot go to Buffy anywhere that Buffy isn't. Right. So which is a lot of places. Yeah. Like, you know, what's his motivation <clears throat> for staying specifically at Wolfram and Hart, I think is still to be determined. Um, mm-hmm. And we can see if we ever get a satisfactory response or explanation of that. Also. So I, I like, I agree with sort of the narrative. Um, writer reasons for keeping Spike around. But let's not forget that, like, we know that the spell um, that made him corporeal again came from Lindsay and Eve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, did the amulet also come from them? Hmm. And if so, 
did it ever have anything to do with Spike being here or not? Like, I think that's part of the, you know. Right, part of the mystery. Quest for the cup of Mountain Dew that, you know, mm-hmm. we're sort of left to ponder is what is that, is any of that stuff meaningful from the Shanshu prophecy to the quest to mm-hmm. um, the amulet and the, you know, box that, makes Spike corporeal again and sets, you know, triggers what is explained as all hell breaking loose, but we don't know necessarily if that's true or not. Um, how much of it was set up by Lindsay and Eve? How much of it is opportunistic on their part of, okay, one thing happened. We don't necessarily know which thing is the thing that happened. And they're just building off that and say, okay, we can work with this. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, or if it's all been planned. Like, mm-hmm. So I think there's that too, like just throwing that into the mix to say, like, yeah. I'll be, like we get that sort of reveal and cliffhanger and then like an entire episode about Harmony <laughs> and like, no, like we don't even see Eve right, and Lindsay. Right, right. So like, there's that question of like, okay, We've got this reveal, but we haven't done anything with it. Where do we, mm-hmm. where do we go on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will say, um, I know I normally wait till the end of our episodes to sort of mention things, um, but the next episode is Soul Purpose, um, S-O-U-L. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, I just want to mention that it's the directorial debut of David Boreanaz. So Hmm. he's going to direct that episode. Now, I mean, we've talked before about writer versus director in some of these things, but I I don't think that means we should ignore when there's a new director. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we do have that. And um, just thought it would be worth bringing up. Cool. And we may or may not see Lindsay and Eve in the next episode. But we probably will. There's a high probability that we may or may not see them. Um, anywho. All right. We should talk about um, our new series that we're starting to talk about. Yeah. This week. Um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel. Yeah. Uh, so, did you... Uh, so, I, I think you had maybe a couple production notes at least, but I, I definitely wanted to talk about um, the idea that one, this is our first sort of adaptation that mm-hmm. we've done. Um, and just kind of maybe some of the things that we're looking at, having uh, both read the book and both seen this miniseries before, yeah. um, just maybe some of our thoughts along that. Um, I don't, we might go a little bit long talking about this episode, but I don't necessarily want to... I don't want to do like an entire like, oh, start of a new series. Like, let's go into all the things. But, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think just sort of setting the stage and kind of yep. talking through some of those um, those sort of ways that we're looking at this particular adaptation would be um, a good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just really quick, just for like setting the stage and especially if anybody listening like might not be familiar with the show or the source material um just because this uh is not a doctor who 
project does not mean that we don't have Doctor Who connections that I think are worth pointing out. Of um, most notably, um, Peter Harness, uh, the writer of these of, of this miniseries, um, writer of Kill the Moon and the Zygon Invasion slash Inversion and uh, Pyramid of Mars. Or not I mean, Pyramid of Mars, Pyramid at the End of the World. Aren't, aren't there only like five writers in all of British TV? And, like, Apparently. Yeah, it's it's same as the acting pool. There's, you know, it's a very limited bunch. Um, so, yeah. So um, I think I would have guessed that it went the other way around, that maybe Doctor Who kind of was a launching pad to getting like a full mini series in like the, you know, the fantasy genre, but actually it was announced that he would be adapting this in 2012, um, which is, you know, a good year or two before he got, you know, started working on Dr. Who with kill the moon. Um, so mm-hmm. even though Dr. Who debuted first, um, his involvement in this property, I think the, the production period was just a longer one, obviously. Um, so, uh, you know, this was actually the thing that he started working on first. Um, the director, uh, Toby Haynes, um, loved the book and had wanted to adapt it for a long time. Apparently, the originally the, the movie rights had been bought by New Line Cinema and wanted to do like a feature film. Um, but mm. producers got involved and said this really should be, you know, a miniseries. It's sort of the length and the detail deserves multiple hours. Um, so working on Doctor Who and Sherlock got Toby Haynes the sort of cachet to do a project like this um so he did that kind of one span of episodes in the matt smith era he did all in a row um the pandorica opens the big bang christmas carol impossible astronaut and day of the moon so that kind of span of those five episodes which is a great run of episodes like at the end of you know between five and six there um Mm -hmm. were all directed by him and then he did some you know, a couple Sherlock episodes as well. Um, so as for the source material, uh, you know, this is based on a novel by Susanna Clark, and we do want to talk about the fact that the other shows we've talked about are all, none of them are completely original. They're all based on something, right? Like even Buffy and Doctor Who and Battlestar Galactica are sort of reinventing or rebooting or continuing older stories and then angel and class have both been spin-offs of those so you could, sure. none of those came from nowhere obviously um but this is obviously the first thing we're talking about that's adapting an already written story you know a novel in this case that kind of has a beginning middle and end and you know exactly the story that you're telling ahead of time um so yeah, this novel was written sort of in the mid nineties, um, published in 2004. It had like a 10 year writing period. She seems to be one of these fairly reclusive writers that, um, just sits on a project for a really long time. Um, cause it took her 10 years to write Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And then since then she's published some short stories in a short story collection, but, um, hasn't really published much, much since then. Um, Apparently, she's been working on a follow-up since 2004, which hasn't come out yet. Um, So 
who knows? So she's on the George R. R. Martin. So she's on the uh, George R. R. Martin Patrick Rothfuss wavelength of like epic eight hundred page fantasy novels that like don't get follow up. Um, and uh, and so this one, you know, the Hugo, the Locus Award, World Fantasy, Mythopaic Awards, Time, Best Novel of the Year, obviously like very acclaimed when it came out. Um, and she was involved behind the scenes in the TV production. So it has a certain amount of authorial, uh, you know, blessing behind it. So yeah, that's sort of my, you know, little production history behind this uh, story. I There are definitely, uh, you know, things out there, our, you know, friends over at Mythgard Academy among them who have discussed this TV at this, you know, TV miniseries as like an adaptation. Um, but obviously I think the focus of this podcast being more on TV shows themselves, we might make the occasional reference to the book, but I'd kind of think it's more appropriate for us to just treat this as, okay, let's just look at it as, um, you know, a, a, a miniseries, you know, from the point of view of maybe people who haven't read it before or without making reference to whatever changes or expansions or adaptations it's making um, and just more take at face value. Like what is it doing as a TV series? Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, having, I mean, as I mentioned before, like we both read uh, the book and seen the series before Um I think it would be really, I mean, it is interesting, of course, I think at times to compare and maybe even criticize like how one version of a story does things versus another um, or, you know, show how maybe well that it does in comparison there. And I think we can do that from time to time. I think though that it, in particular, the way that the book is written and then the way that the miniseries is presented um, in points of view and um, sort of the even the structure of the narrative, mm. it would be really difficult, I think, to uh, to do that sort of comparison because it, they really are while they're conveying similar events a lot of the time, they really are such different presentations, um, mm -hmm. especially in that. So like the, the point of view is kind of the big one that I look at um, in the book. It's very much the, the style in which it's written, the um, footnotes, <laughs> um, which are all, you know, fictional footnotes. Um, and some of them and, quite extensive and like, quite of them you know three telling, long footnotes yeah telling critical parts of the story itself mm -hmm. even um but also just in the references and realizing like you know <laughs> and how many of these footnotes are in reference to um john segundus who is uh, like the first character we see in this mm -hmm. uh adaptation but who in the story I think we don't even realize, um, but we do get eventually is like the one who presumably wrote the book itself. Like the text that you're reading, mm -hmm. I believe is attributed to Sugundus, if, I, if I'm correct. 
Um, I think so. It's been a Jonathan while. Jonathan yeah. and Mr. Yeah. Norum. At least that's the impression that I got. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm misremembering if that's ever actually stated or not. But but then when you realize like three quarters of the footnotes are references to like Segundus, <laughs> like right. Segundus, you know, wrote such and such and whatever. And it's like, oh, he's like, I mean, it's Susanna Clark, but it's it's Segundus referring to himself, right, you know, right. for like all of these citing your own and academic articles so, and yeah, so, and so I think there's a certain British tongue in cheekness um, in in a lot of that, um, which makes it fun. I think and it, yeah. it's enjoyable. I like the footnotes. I know some people are. I think it depends on maybe your level of. Um, well, I won't say what what level of what that I think, but. I, I some people seem to enjoy the footnotes more than others, um, sure. and so yeah, it definitely them. takes an appreciation for dry humor, you know, like yeah, that kind of fun well, and, of the of the academic pedantic, sure. you know, like you have to have enough of a taste for that to enjoy it being made fun of, you know, and I, being spoofed a bit. I can imagine there are a number of people who are maybe more into popular style books who simply never read the footnotes. And mm-hmm. I mean, I like, I might feel that they missed out, but I, but maybe they totally would have gotten too bogged down in trying to read all that and mm-hmm. would have not finished the book anyway. So I, you know, who, who, who's right to say that they should or should not have read the footnotes. Anyway, all well, there's, that to there's say, definitely a sense, even with this being, an eight part mini series and thank God they didn't do it as a movie. Right. Um, seven part. Yes. Right. Um, so even with that length, which is what it needs, like this would have been a bit of a chore to cram this into a feature length. Um, there's still a sense of that, like, uh, this is the good parts version kind of thing, like an abridgment, like was definitely it, it, even though it's not, it still retains the kind of stuffiness of the period um, in the dialogue and everything, but it loses that kind of ponderous academic thing, which can be quite fun, but also like we're definitely getting the action. But you can understand why there it's not brought into a, you know, film, television adaptation for a popular audience yeah like it's we're going we're getting the events we're not just we're not getting the kind of commentary and and digression of the history of all these different things to the same extent it's this is very much like a tv series where it's like all right what's the plot what's happening well considering there's over the in between you know yeah, there's like a total of what, like three minutes of the York Society of Magicians, mm-hmm. you know, meeting, <laughs> not 50 pages right. <laughs> worth uh, right. plus footnotes. So, right, or like the whole history of the various cruelties of Strange's father is sure. kind of conveyed in one interaction with his servant. Whereas like, again, that's a whole chapter of before we even get to Strange, it's all about his father and the you know the estate and the house and and the servant and all the crazy errands he makes his servant run on and all these sorts of things um sort of stripped down to their essence so yeah no absolutely um so there's that 
part of it. And I think also, so then the point of view aspect of that is because we're seeing everything through the eyes of John Segundis in the book, um, there's a sense, there's a sense, of, so again, for maybe those who are academics, when you're reading a paper by, say, I don't know, Tom Shippey, you're reading it with a point of view, knowing what Tom Shippey's views about certain things are, and, you know, maybe what his uh, viewpoints are on. And and so um, uh, our friend Dave, who recently uh, finished his thesis for Signum, um, relayed to me that he... Uh, in writing his thesis, um, he was getting tips from his advisor uh, about how one should anticipate and uh, respond uh, preemptively to certain arguments that, um, you know, certain scholars in the field might bring up in those sorts of things. And mm -hmm. so, so from that sort of academic viewpoint, when you're reading through a book that's from John Segundis, and granted, like, you don't know up front that that is but as you learn sort of his viewpoint going along and realize like oh this is the same john sugundis who so desperately wanted to become a magician mm. and you know turn to the history of magic um and you know followed and interviewed and wrote letters about and and articles about you know Norrell and strange as things are going on and is sort of this historian but also a contemporary figure like like there's a sense there of of reading through this lens of John Segundis, which is completely devoid. In mm. we're completely devoid of that in the film, mm. in the at TV adaptation, mm. because you can't really do that. I mean, okay, they could they have done like a sort of documentary style. I mean, maybe, but like we all know that they didn't make film documentaries and. You know the the you know seventeen hundreds or whatever this is. So um, I think that the, the the one gesture they make towards that sort of thing, and I think they could have done if they'd chosen to gone way further with it, is voiceover. Like have it be narrated by somebody, which I think it sure. was probably a good choice not to do that. Like and right. and because like voiceover, if you don't really need it probably best to not have too much of it anyway but it's interesting to me that the one little narration we do get at the beginning isn't even Segundus it's Childermas um right. which like again right. that could have been a hint at it would have been appropriate for Segundus as like here's the first character we meet he's the scholar of magical history it totally makes sense that he's telling a story and and writing out like our little prologue here but they don't do that though, and it. I, I'm going to bring up Childermas like frequently for things like this to kind of because <laughs> he's awesome. But like hinting at like there's more going on with him than might meet the eye. Like, all right, he's Norrell's manservant. Why is he elevated to this position of narrator, um, even if it's only for ten seconds, and then we don't get any more narration. Um, yeah. And I don't know that we ever do maybe at the very end, but like they could have had it where like you had a narrator throughout telling you those little asides and giving you backstory, but they, they choose not to do that. They just kind of keep the focus on 
the dialogue and the characters and sort of what you learn in the scenes. Um, it, it's right, a very much more um, what like omniscient, you know, third right. person, right. you know, view of what's going on for sure. Right, um, right. You don't necessarily get the sense that this is other than that one prologue moment. It's not like this is being told to you by a particular person. It's more like you have a window into the objective view of what all is happening with these different characters across the country. Or uh, I, I said omniscient. That's not correct. Omnipresent is probably more accurate. Like because right, right. it's not omniscient because we don't act because we don't have the voiceover. We don't know what they're thinking or mm-hmm. you know what's going on. Sort of in the grander scheme of things, it's just right. observation of of what's actually there. Um, Right, but and but but it's not tied to any one particular character. It sort of exactly. freely flips between all of them. Right. Um, so yeah, and and that naturally does. I mean, it has to change sort of the literally the lens through which you're seeing the uh, the story being told, and I and that's fine. Like both are good valid ways and i think they're both done well in their respective medium Mm -hmm. um but all that to say that like for those reasons like we should definitely approach Mm -hmm. this for what it is and i i i honestly like yes you can try to extract the events from um you know what happens in the book and sort of say, okay, these events happen in the book, but they do or don't happen in the TV version or they happen, but in a different way in the TV version. Mm -hmm. And that's all fine. And we might have some of those comments, like you, you brought up, you know, the litany of, um, you know, sins of father strange. And Mm -hmm. so that's like, we can mention those things, but I don't, I don't know that it's incredibly important to do so mm-hmm. and certainly not all the time um so just yeah, no, just I to sort of bring that up yeah it's a um, little more fun and and appropriate for this podcast i think to just discuss what's on screen um yeah so all of that to say let's go ahead and start um and let's start with segundus um whose point of view we are not seeing this from but as you noted uh, is the first character that we see in the uh, in the story, um, and I do like so not not only is it like not Segundus, but the view that we actually first get of him is like the maids in the hmm. next room, like sort of spying on him, <laughs> which is like like even a just I just said we didn't have to talk about point of view every time, but I'll mention this mm-hmm. just because it's it's like even like it's not it's not only that it's like. And this might be the only time we get sort of the a more explicit non omnipresent point of view. Like mm. it's almost explicitly the maid's point of view, like looking through the knot hole mm. or whatever, or the slats in the boards or whatever. Yeah. Um the or the yeah. So it's just kind of funny that um yeah. that that is the first sort of view that we get of him. Um Well and it brings up this recurring thing of like the class divide but especially as it relates to magic like Mm. you know apart from vinculus who we'll get to later and what he represents of these sort of street tramp magicians um 
we what we get very strongly in this opening with like John Segundus and the York Society is that magic is a gentlemanly pursuit. Um, not the practice sure. of it, but the study of it. And so I think it's like appropriate that the first right. image is, okay, if if this is a story about gentlemen magicians, we're not like ignoring the fact that they're not the only people in the world. There's another, there are working classes of people who aren't privy to this sort of thing, or they're not allowed, or they're not given the or kind don't of, have the means. or whatever, yeah, whatever, like so many reasons why you know, the kind of maid servants and washer ladies aren't the ones learning um, learning spells and practicing magic and all that sort of thing. Which, which is, I, that's a good point. I, I hadn't quite considered it from that viewpoint, um, perhaps to my fault, but um, when you think about like some of the portrayals of magic in English literature. Um, you think about like the old hag with the cauldron, right. like out right. in the woods, who's not a not a lady, you know, landed gentry, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like, right? Um, it's an inversion of the stereotype, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's precedent for the more uh, noble, if we want to call that, uh, call it that, pursuit of magic as well. I think. We get some of that. Um, but I also like it's funny because I also think of um, when when I think of like the sort of landed gentry and doing like experiments and stuff, I think of like the early like natural philosopher mm -hmm. Isaac Newton type of thing where it's like they have these sort of, you know, um, peerage, uh, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you, you know, like uh, uh, patrons, you know, who are sort of funding their work and even to the, so I'm, I'm thinking um, somewhat uh, specifically about um, Neil Stevenson's um, Baroque cycle where mm -hmm. it covers some, I mean, it spans, you know, Europe and America and whatever, but where you have like these scenes of like these sort of early, physicists and chemists and whatever before like those were actual pursuits at like some lord's estate and like completely um messing things up and had like everyone having like these experiments going in these weird directions you mm -hmm. know in like the stables or whatever and um so it you get the you get that sort of sense out of this except it's magic it's not you know um philosophy or chemistry or biology mm -hmm. or, or whatever um or, or while well, but you get the sense too like that like all of those like isaac newton and stuff like he was big into the occult right you know in addition right. to physics so right. like maybe it's not that far right. off right uh, like from the, that kind of thing the the line between alchemy and chemistry was still somewhat blurred like it, yeah. it hadn't yet or or gone. very blurred very <laughs> yeah. yeah or 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 not present, you know, like his sure. his experiments into the natural world had a strong magical element to them. So yeah. it's not even... Or at least mystical, yeah. Like right, right. Not necessarily... And, and maybe there's not a huge difference mm -hmm. between magical and mystical in that sense, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's not even like 
even, this is clearly an alternate history to ours, but it's not even period that inaccurate. <laughs> like, you know, no, it, no, you, it's this not isn't that far off from the, that time period of like, okay, post enlightenment, but only just, you know, like we're still, sure. you know, we're still in, we kind of have one foot in the medieval, like those philosophies that you were saying. Um, which did blend science and kind of metaphysics and mysticism and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And we're not yet, we're kind of pre-industrial, um, you know, and it's, you know, yes, we kind of have people who believe in enlightenment reason, but we also have, you know, romanticism and all those sorts of movements. So um, it's not that far off from actual history mm -hmm. um and i think it, you were saying maybe before we started recording that even the flavor of fantasy and magic is a very pseudo-scientific one like you get the sense of the spells yes. that they do having a recipe like it's not just about like as on the scale of fantasy texts it's not one that's just about like i don't know spiritualism and you know your inner powers of belief or like you know think of a happy thought and you fly it's like no sure. you, you follow access your inner yellow crayon exactly you follow like steps and there's a proper way to go about things and okay the 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 recipes have been lost or Norrell is the only one who has actual guidebooks to these sorts of things um and there is a, an aspect of talent and innate ability that can't always just be learned by anybody, but there's still a sense of this is, this is a craft that can be sort of mastered with practice and skill and education. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to that point, then the ones with the means to get that, right. You know, education and, have have the money to buy the materials that are necessary the silver bowls and the mm -hmm. tchotchkes from far away that you know are going to cost you however much to get it from a you know it, it's someone who has a estate and an income and mm -hmm. that type of thing who is going to be able to afford to do that which right. is kind right. of the from the tangent that we went on you know that's why the maids aren't going to be the ones doing the magic right, there right. they don't have the education or the means to mm -hmm. get the supplies and all of that right um all right so now that we've covered the first minute and a half um <laughs> yeah so segundus i mean so um i it's unclear here and and again like trying not to pull in like knowledge from the book mm. um, where I think we do see him like join the York society and there's like several meetings and debates and like mm -hmm. papers that they read, you know, which are all like the types of things that like the early physics clubs do, right. you know, like, you know, they go together and they read a paper on, sorry, my dog's like over here by my guitar and I'm trying to like get her away. No um, random like strummed strings in the middle of the discussion um yeah or even i mean which 
even happened later, right? You think of like the Inklings and stuff where they're like meeting at, you know, the pub and like reading papers to each other or stories or mm-hmm. whatever. Like that all had like the, um, you know, Royal Society of whatever. Um, yeah. You know, they got together and read papers and one paper might be on botany and then the next paper might be on astrology <laughs> and the next one might be on, you know, the humors and are they still relevant? Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of thing. And so like, this is one of those types of societies you get. Um, and of course the, the funnier bit, which is, uh, the, you know, this idea that like, you know, it's the York society of magicians, but of course they don't actually do magic. They don't do practical magic. They do theoretical magic, which is the history of magic. They, um, read books and write, you know, papers on the history, um, magic that was done at one time in England, but which no longer is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the very British thing of not only is that the case, but to actually practice magic would be ungentlemanly. Right. Um, but you get the sense that the reason it would be ungentlemanly is because none of them can actually do magic. Right. If they could actually perform magic, then it would totally be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and they they know they can't, and so they have to justify their own like right. uselessness there. Um, and and well, anyone who we, claims we, to do practical magic, yeah. it's not that like they can't. I mean, they do call for a demonstration to prove it, but um, it's not that they can't. It's that they wouldn't accept them because they're clearly not a gentleman if, if mm-hmm. they're doing the practical magic. Right. Right, and again, there's. Um, there's the classicism there of the only magicians we see until Norrell who do practice and are accepted to, you know, like be quote magicians are the vinculuses of the world. And so, you know, I mean, the, the, the York society would, would dismiss them as, you know, con men anyway. Um, you know, right. they can't and really, probably most of them are right. They're, they're, they're tricksters. They're not actually, magicians but furthermore they're not gentlemen and so like you said if you if anybody this is the sort of get out of jail free card anybody that actually can prove their own practical ability proves himself to be low status um you know so they're sort of protected no matter what or so they think um yeah yeah yeah, and it's gentle ribbing at those sorts of academic clubs, you know. Much as we all might wish to be a fly on the wall for an Inklings meeting, um, it's kind of funny to have, you know, those sorts of clubs where people get together and read papers to each other. Um, slightly amusing. Um, sure. Well, yeah, and um, I mean, it's that adage of, you know, those who can't do teach, right? right. right? um anyway uh so yeah so and Segundus comes to them of course with a very serious question so what i'm not clear on which i think we get a much better sense of in in the book is whether or not Segundus has been a part of this group for some time Mm. or if this is like his first meeting um in the book, we sort of see him join the group and and sort of interact as a new member and 
then sort of come around to his, mm -hmm. you know, revelation of his search for wanting to understand mm -hmm. why magic is no longer performed in England. Yeah. Um, here with this sort of compression, um, we don't get a sense, like we don't necessarily know how long he's been a part of this group or not. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it comes down to the, the same question of, uh, and, and of course, it, everything's sort of like this long explanatory speech, right? You know? Yeah. It has been no small inducement in my coming to Europe that your excellent and or distinguished society exists here. Um, and again, even that's not a clue. Like, well, when did you come to New York and when did you find out about this society right. and how long have you been here? Um, anyway, so, you know, going on and talking about how he has studied magic for years and only recently began to wonder why great feats of magic that he reads about are not seen on the street or in the battlefield. Um, Oh, so also, actually, there's this overhanging, um, you know, uh, uh, war going on in Europe that is part of the reason why Zagundis in particular is, although he talks about the battlefield, but you also get the sense that, like, he's in it for the magic. And, like, right. he's a, he he's just a thinks, gentle fellow, yeah. Like, like, oh, yes, you know, magic that could be used for the good of England. But, like, if there wasn't going a war going on, he would find some other yeah. use for magic for the good of England, right? Yeah. Like, it just, it's the most, it's the easiest sort of excuse to, to explain why. It, it's sort of his justification, like, the public justification for why he is, you know, searching for magic and, right. and all of this. Um, I have begun to wonder why modern magicians are unable to work the magic that they write about. In short, gentlemen, I wish to know, why is magic no longer done in England? Um, funny, too, that he says that they're unable to do it. Not that, like, mm. magic itself has disappeared, mm. but why is it not done? Why are we incapable of it? I don't get the sense that he ever thinks that magic doesn't exist. Mm. Like, it seems to be that it that he believes at least that it exists just as much as it ever did. Right. Um, it's right, just that nobody that, knows how to do it. Right. Or nobody seems to doubt that it ever did exist at one point. Like there doesn't right. seem to be a sense of. How, at least in this group. In the, I mean, right. Granted, the, there's a bit of self-selection going on here. We only see the ones who are like inclined to believe in magic. Sure. Sure. Um, <laughs> For the most part. But yeah, it's not even like, it's not even like, let's study the beliefs of earlier civilizations and right. take, maybe take seriously what their supernatural or religious beliefs were, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we believe it, them. Like we can, we can study the, the Vikings and study the Norse pantheon or the classical gods, but you can do so with a certain remove of that's what they believed in. But there seems to be a, like primary yeah. belief here. Yeah. 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 He, he's not like a, a comparative, you know, folklorist or right, something. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Right. Yep. No, it's more like, I don't know if it's like young or something, but it's like definitely like somebody who takes seriously the spiritual realities of what they're studying. So if there's a anthropological element to it, it's like within the tradition, you know, he might be studying the history of magic, but he genuinely believes that magic itself exists. Um, and f for all their skepticism 
I think the York Society do too. Like, again, they're not arguing that magic isn't a real thing. Um, they just are arguing that we we should not, you know, be practicing it. And, you know, no gentleman would ever even think of such a thing. Um, but we could if we wanted to, you know, is sort of the, yeah maybe the implication. Yeah, I don't, I mean... I mean, they wouldn't come out and say that because they don't want to have to prove it. But, like, that's the underlying suggestion is, you know. I guess maybe I'm a little more cynical. I, I, think, I think there could be some in the York Society of Magic who, or magicians, who don't believe that magic ever existed, but feel like they have a pretty good, like, it's a good way to spend a Tuesday night, right? Sure. Like, eating and drinking and talking theoretically about magic. Like, sure. At yeah. least until we get the demonstration, be. like yeah. I like maybe even the leader, I kind of would feel like maybe is along those lines of like you're ruining a good gig here, dude. Like knock it off. Mm -hmm. um, that would be my yeah cynical take on at, at least some of them. Certainly, I agree with you that it, that at least some of them feel the other way as well. And and I we get the representative in Honeywell mm -hmm. um, who absolutely believes not only in the like historical existence of magic but in the the present state and and becomes Segundus's second uh um to uh sort of search for the mm -hmm. the answer to this question of why is magic no longer practiced in England mm -hmm. um with the assumption that it was at one time and could still potentially be today yeah. if we had the right people yeah, and, and I think you're right, and that's a good point. There's also, you know, that's another very English thing. Um, you know, clergy who don't necessarily believe <laughs> sure. um, what they preach. Um, is that Arabella's un uncle? Un <laughs> unfortunately to say is like an English tradition. Her especially brother, is it? What's, what's the relation? Is it uncle? Wait, what, who? What? Arabella? Uh, Arabella's relative, who's a... Oh, her a, brother. Yeah. I think is he's it, a... Is a brother. He's yeah, a yeah. true believer, right? He seems like... <laughs> no, I think... I like, was just joking. Yeah. I, I, I didn't actually... No, yeah. but that's like another... Especially like a very like Victorian kind of, you know, or, or um, Regency period thing of like people who inherited like or they went into the clergy because their older brother inherited all the money. So you have to do something. And so we've become, you know, um, right. We become a vicar and Let the um, church support you, but you yeah. don't like that. It's either that or the military. So, um, or you have to like get a job. Um, so like there was this, and like, who wants that? and who wants that? Especially if you come from, you know, good, uh, a good background so good stock, yeah. as like you know i remember kind of learning about that in victorian lit like at, you know for the second son that was a very common choice and so you have this tradition of a lot of clergymen who did not go into it for any religious personal conviction um sure. you know and there is a certain amount of a, a large amount of hypocrisy in that um that i think yeah probably at least with some of the York society here. Um, and I think, yeah, the leader is probably a good candidate for that. Somebody who doesn't really 
truly believe in you know what he's saying but yeah you're yeah. right honeywell as the as the counter example to that um and also like you get the sense i mean honeywell remains a member of the society um but you get the sense that like he's not too concerned when like he he sort of signs away his right to call himself a magician if like it actually means that magic exists right mm-hmm. like he's he's more content with the existence of ma- like he's not doing it for the sort of cynical reason of i don't believe that norrell can't do it he's doing it with a very hopeful reason of i believe that norrell can do it and if he can then i'm going to stop like pretending that i'm a, mu- a right. musician magician um and i'm you know and then go from there um Right, and he's honest about like if magic exists, then I am no magician. You know, I'm I'm right. I'm a, a magical historian, a historian, or and yeah. an enthusiast, but not an actual, you know, practicer of it. So yeah. Um. Right. So um. So Norrell and Honeywell. Uh, or sorry, not Norrell, uh, Sigmundus and Honeywell go on sort of this um, bookshop tour. Uh, I, I was going to say of England, but it's probably like a small area around York, right? right, right. Um, that uh, turns out like somebody is beating them out and, and buying all of the books before they can get there. The books the books of magic and the books on magic. Um, and uh, Segunda, I mean, another example of things that are explored more in depth in the book. Um, I think we get two examples uh, explicitly here in the film of that happening. Mm. Um, One sort of with Segundus by himself saying, hey, you promised there would be books here. And the guy like gives him his money back. And then um, Honeywell shows up and then they go off to like another bookshop. And um, the guy's like, oh, yeah, the books that I was holding for you are all gone. And so he looks up, um, finds Norrell's uh, name in the um, ledger there and mm-hmm. like seeks him out. Um, anything else on Segundus? I mean, he doesn't totally disappear. Um, no, but like, and, and, you know, he, he, he'll come back later. But yeah, I mean, for a while in the middle, his, his role is a little secondary, like, he kind of kicks us off here and then we'll kind of pop up later. But, um, well, and I of, don't, I mean, sort of a, just get a, his... a catalyst for this Norrell's, yeah. Norrell's big coming out to and society. And yeah, he's a catalyst, but also he's a, like, he's just sort of showing like, what's the status, right? Like what, like this is the norm. Like this is our present situation of, you know, England without magic. Um, so, I mean, we don't see fairy at all here. We will see it later in the series. But there's a sense in which he's the normal person getting mm. pulled into the world of magic um, within the mundane world of England. Right. So it almost becomes like a, a magical world within a magical right. world later. Right. There's um, layers of layers of that. Um, yeah, there's something fairy about Hurtview Abbey, you know, of, you know, hey, be careful in these hallways. They can be a little 
you know, a little confounding. Like, do the hallways move? Like, I get the sense of like, maybe mm -hmm. the rooms don't stay in the same place. Like, yeah, there's something sort of twisting and magical even about the house itself. Um, yeah. that I know you're dying to talk about children, Matt, so we might as well talk about him the moment in which we meet him. Um, great casting and acting. So uh, good. Like, like perfect. Absolutely perfect. I, I think of all the characters, I, I know we're doing a lot more comparison to the books, but like I think of all the characters in the story, probably closest to like sort of my mm. vision and imagination of him from mm -hmm. the book. Um, yeah. yeah. I think, I honestly, like, I mean, I can tell them apart, but like, like Segundus and like um, the casting for like Segundus and Strange mm. are 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 like a little too close to me. Like they're kind of, they're they're almost interchangeable. Mm. Um, not as characters per se, but like mm -hmm. just sort of in the acting and Englishness of them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, maybe we can observe that as we go along and see like how Strange changes because like mm. he certainly does as he gets more and more into magic. Um, yeah, but that's like, funny. I wouldn't. I don't know that I agree. Like, I think the, I think the rakishness of you know the Byronic element of Strange comes across fairly strongly. Whereas, like Segundus to me is much more, like, like one of those Jane Austen characters, like those kind of like quiet and somewhat meek and like you know, well, not like, I mean. I don't know. I don't yes. know what, what I don't just I don't disagree with you. I think I think there's <laughs> I mean physically I, they're more similar for sure. Like, I, I think that's just kind of what I'm saying. Is like there's a very like sort of eighteenth century English like lord not even lord, but like at least landed like someone who has money, you know, who can spend time going around to bookshops looking mm -hmm. to buy books. Um just about them that like like I think Norrell is also that but like he's sort of weird and quirky and shy enough that like mm -hmm. he he sort of backs away from that um a little bit but like even Honeywell and he's older but like has that same sort of quality I think that like Strange and and mm. Segundus um have that um I don't know I Anyway, that's fine. Yeah, we, I mean, and may, if we want, if you want to talk about it more, we can. I don't, I guess I'm just saying, like, compared to, like, then Childermas, like, mm -hmm. like, his is just such a, a more, like, you see him and you're like, yeah, that's Childermas. Like, <laughs> right. I didn't, right. I, like, I think the others were a little more interchangeable. Right, than, right. Like, like, you could have. While I don't disagree with you on the characterizations, if you had, like, switched the actors around a little, I don't think. You sure. Necessarily. Sure. Like noticed much of a difference in their portrayals. Sure. No. That. Yeah. This guy kind of does leap off the page. Like. Um, yeah. Um, That's all I meant. Yeah. Yeah. No. I and and I I won't quibble with the uh, perfection of his casting. Like it's ever. It's like the hair. It's the voice. It's the accent. It's like. And and the, the delivery and of, the del like not like, just the voice but like the enunciation and, and right. uh I don't, I don't know if cadence is the right word or what yeah. you know the right diction right maybe I don't right know. um it's a little bit of a 
meme to like have him leaning on everything like it like sure. just that like everyone else is a gentleman you know they stand up straight they have these little frock coats on that kind of keep their posture good they're sort of refined and polite and he's just over there like lounging on stuff like it's just so clear like, that he's different which is like again lower class too but but he keeps the company of these gentlemen um and and is like a servant like right. i mean this is no alfred right which is like the right quintessential uh right. you know american right. ideal of what a british servant is right <laughs> right like the the jeeves and worcester of like like the proper butler he's definitely right. not that he's not that and i mean he, maybe he's not technically even a butler but like he's certainly like the hand the right hand of norrell and but also seems to have like an influence over norrell yeah uh that you wouldn't expect of a servant <laughs> per se right. um right right uh it's it's sort of seems to be his idea largely to it's time for you to make yourself known to well and he even says like i'm bringing him to london we're doing, like, yeah we're going to london yeah yeah like like it's his idea like you know he's talking to segundus and and honeywell i think in that moment and he's like well, this is why I'm going to take Norrell to London. Like, it, there's no question about it. And not even a sense that, like, Norrell knows about it yet. Right, <laughs> like, right. When are you planning on telling Norrell that you're right. bringing him to London? Right. Um, well, and there's a little moment, too, even when um, when he's brought them into the library and they ask, may we look at the books? And Norrell even kind of looks at Childermass, like, almost, right. almost for permission. Like, and like there's a little nod like yeah go ahead and norrell is like oh nothing would make me happier again like it's his idea <laughs> but there's like a sense of like he's checking with his guy that this is a good idea and if he said right. no he probably would follow with his advice well which makes you wonder what the source of that is like cuz i don't necessarily think it's that i mean maybe we'll get confirmation one way or the other later but i don't i don't necessarily get the sense at this point that like strain or um norrell is um controlled by children mass mm. but maybe there's an element of norrell understands where his own inadequacies lie mm. and that children mass is maybe a better judge of character than mm -hmm. he is mm -hmm. and so Maybe out of um, well, right, like is there? I, I don't know if you watch like the Big Bang Theory, but it's like Sheldon asking, you know, uh, Penny or someone, like, you know, when is it okay to say this thing? <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? Like, right? Yeah, like there's a sense of like Norrell knows his own limitations, and so he sort of trusts Childermass to make the right decisions for him because he's not entirely sure he can make the right decision on his own right and like whether or not he would articulate it this way there's a respect of his knowledge of these sorts of things like again sure. and again maybe norrell with pressed would say well ultimately it's up to me and nobody tells me what to do right. and, and he might take affront to that but like at least what subconsciously or unconsciously he does realize there are things that Childermass knows more about than I do. And yeah. um and and it's best if I 
when dealing with other people check with him like you know mm -hmm. around his books and his library norrell is kind of the first and only authority but when it comes to social interaction um he better kind of just glance over and and make sure that this is a wise decision yeah well and and there is that sense of uh tildermas as the you know servant advisor right like like he's he's both you know and maybe he is alfred in that way like he's both like caretaker and confidant and mm -hmm. you know uh is the one that you sort of bounce ideas off uh but who also like runs errands <laughs> for right. you or whatever right. like um and that yeah that there's like a reason like you know throw in a bit of like you know pr agent and you know social uh calendar uh i don't know yeah humor or whatever um, well and kind of enforcer too like there's the bit later on sure. like i'm skipping ahead slightly but like i think it's consistent with this idea like when when vinculus offends him it's that kind of the, somebody you can say get this person out of town like i don't want like so kind of yes. can handle himself to like right. go out and like take care of business whatever that means and maybe like also the, the fact that he like gives him spells like can children mess do magic like again there's that slight hint that like okay we know okay maybe norrell presents himself as the only living practical magician but i don't know if that's he's giving him spells to use right or, so, or how much of that is willful sort of ignorance. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, Children Mass obviously, like, has a lot of skills and, you know, accepts spells, even though he doesn't, we don't hear him describe himself as a magician either, you know, but. Sure. But that's a little unclear at this point, exactly what his capabilities are. Yeah, his skill set, right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a varied skill set. So well, and and also that so he definitely does get the instruction from um, Norrell to go take care of Vinculus, but you also get the sense that like like he does it like the in the end the result is that Vinculus leaves London at mm -hmm. Childermass's sort of hand. Mm -hmm. um, although I think well we'll talk about Vinculus too, but you also get the sense that like the watching and waiting isn't strictly part of like the order, right? right. Norrell would have been knows, fine yeah. if he just went up and grabbed Vinculus by the scruff of the collar and, and threw him out of town. Right. But like he doesn't, he watches and waits and kind of sees what he does and interacts with him. And like, yeah, there's, there's a lot to go on there. That isn't, he, he, again, he gets the job done, but, it's not in the sort of strict way that maybe Norrell was thinking or hoping. Right. He he will keep his own counsel and, you know, might deviate from orders when he deems necessary. Like he's not just a follow a blind follower of what Norrell tells him. Like he's mm -hmm. using his own discretion and judgment. Um which I think is what Norrell trusts about him, even if he might be displeased to find that he's sometimes hesitant to do what he's told. But there's an element of like free agency there. Like, you know, I don't think 
like you said, I don't think Childermas is controlling Norrell or undermining him, but Norrell's and Childermas's objectives aren't always necessarily a perfect circle. Alignment, yeah. Like there, there's an overlap in the Venn diagram, but there's there are significant right. areas where they don't line up you know, and they don't always agree about everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we've kind of, yeah, we've definitely moved into talking more about Norrell um, and Childress, but mm -hmm. um, to sort of button up like the York society stuff, um, Norrell, after, after Segundus and uh, Honeywell go and meet Norrell and sort of um, confess to the York society that there is a magician, a practical mu magician, I will keep wanting to say musician, um, a practical magician um, in England. I, I wonder why they don't bring up the sort of shifting walls, like, or presumably shifting walls. Like, is it too nebulous? Like maybe mm. they're not clear is like something going on here or mm. what, what exactly it is, but. Right. Um, that's it's curious to me that they don't mention that as a possible um, kind of magic that they uh, saw at um, mm -hmm. Norrell's house. Um, right. Anyway. Maybe it is just that it was not sure. Like they're, it's not. They have a sense yeah. that something weird is going on, but no real. They need tangible proof. You know. Right. Um, but regardless, they, um, yeah, they, they invite, the York Society invites Norrell to come and uh, demonstrate his magic. Um, and, and we get then that uh, other scene with Childermass. Uh, you're acting as, you know, I don't know, I guess legal counselor <laughs> in yeah. like this yeah. particular thing of, um, yeah, you know, saying, okay, if you want this to happen, um, we can make it happen. But in order to do that, you're going to have to uh, stop calling yourselves magicians if Norrell can demonstrate that he is a magician. And, uh, you know, if not, then then he'll do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, we already talked about, like, Honeywell's happy to sign it if it means magic exists. The others are a bit more skeptical. I mean, we, we, we get sort of Honeywell and the leader as sort of like the two extremes of position, presumably of the, the others fall probably with one or the other, though maybe somewhere in between um, as well. Um, Segundus doesn't sign. Mm. So, um, which I, which is definitely interesting. Um, yeah. Just, because he would like to call himself a magician someday, presumably. Um, I don't know that it's entirely clear. Like, does he say that explicitly? I don't. I don't think he, he does. But that's sort of the sense that you get. Yeah, he says magic is my life. Um, so, like, yeah, a, a vocation, not just in the sense of the thing he does, like for a living, but like his life's calling. So yeah, I think that that is the, the implication is if magic is ex real and in the world and people can do it, I want to be one of them. Um, sure. You know, so. Although his capability is still to be tested. Right. right. None of his spells have 
produced anything yet. Um, his many bones that he's broken or pipes or whatever it is that he has in his bowl. Um, right. But yeah. And it's not a deal breaker that Segundus doesn't sign. He's sort of allowed to be exempt from this contract. Um, yeah, which makes you wonder, because like, he doesn't ever, um, he doesn't tell, uh, sorry, I'm getting a weird echo. Are you hearing that? Childer Mass doesn't tell Norrell that uh, Segundus abstains from signing. Um, so again, is that another example of Childer Mass kind of making his own decision on that account? What Norrell doesn't know won't hurt him, you know, like, yeah. Sure. And maybe like a form of respect to Segundus, who isn't one of these hypocritical people who they're looking to sort of confront or disgrace like you know he's he wants norrell to be successful he wants there to be magic so he's sort of allowed to retain his title um you know like he's kind of allowed to sit out the bet and you know not take the consequences if they lose right which is also interesting um we know that it's not the case that segundus is the other magician um, and like he even says that in this episode, so it's that's not like even a plot reveal or anything. Um, but like there is that sense of of maybe by retaining that title, like it, is that who they're talking about? At least from Norrell's perspective, like if he learns this, mm. you know, maybe that could throw him off about who the other magician actually is. Mm -hmm. Just to. Thought. I don't. I. I don't actually remember if they go down that road or not in the miniseries, but we can watch yeah. and talk about it if it happens. Keep an eye on it. So then, there's the miracle, as Norrell so smugly puts it, the miracle of York. I. I like how sort of pleased Norrell gets with the various, um, you know, press or whatever. Uh, that he, you know, that Childer Mass reads to him. <laughs> There's a lot of vanity in Norrell. As much as he's claiming that his magic is public service for king and country, it's really more about his own fame. Yeah. So as he kind of, when we see him transferred to London, I think we see that Norrell does not like certain aspects of fame. The, the things that mean that you get have to socialize a lot and that everybody like getting recognized on the street and having to be announced at parties and all that sort of thing are not the bits of fame that he takes to, but there's just the idea of having his accomplishments in the paper and having, mm -hmm. uh, you know, his skills be of high repute is the, the thing that he's sort of most pleased by. Yeah, which makes sense, like, seeing your name in print, right? Like, he's all about the books mm -hmm. and stuff. So, yeah, references and getting published, you know, citations and that kind of thing would totally please him. 
um, yeah. but yeah, like the actual interaction with people. I, I, I mean, that line uh, of, you know, party, I just want to go home and read a book. <laughs> like, I can relate to that. Who among us hasn't uh, had that thought? Yeah. Speaking for the other bookish introverts out there. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of famous people speak to that. Like, you know, there's there's a price for it. Um, and you lose your privacy. Um, and, and a lot of really kind of morally dubious, opportunistic folks suddenly become very interested in you um, and having access to you. So there's, for as much as fame can be, you know, pleasurable and, you know, strokes your ego, there's a severe price that comes with it. Um, yeah, and yeah, so maybe we could talk about draw light and lascelles as these sort of social piranhas, you know, that like hook themselves yeah. onto, um, yeah, you know, whatever seems to whoever's in vogue at the moment, whatever is the rage, and kind of milk it for all that they can get out of it. Yeah. I, do we need to say anything more than that about them? I guess the only, <laughs> maybe the only distinction, and maybe we can keep an eye on this for like what the characters end up doing is just the contrast of their, not appearance, like physical appearance, but like the way that they come across. Like, even if they're the same, they don't appear to be like the same. Like, draw light is, you know, this very, flamboyant theatrical like he wants he, he's not subtle like it's clear that he's opportunistic and trying to get himself in with the in crowd and wants to be associated with whoever's in fashion and kind of have the honor of introducing all those people and that sort of thing and I think it would be easy to overlook the fact that Lascelles is kind of the same it's just that he's less overt about it um like he doesn't seem as pushy as draw light but he's still in the back rooms having these same conversations um he's just a little more subtle um so that's yeah. the only like i think at this point seems like the big contrast between the two it's just sort of their like very opposite presentations Um, should we talk about strange? Sure. Was there anything, Was there anything else about Norrell that we, I mean, other than the sort of ending with, um, Emma, um, anything else about Norrell? No, I mean, I think we can, I don't think we need to go in. We're going to have more episodes. Like, obviously he's trying to get himself in with, you know, Walter Pohl and everything, but, um, I think that's all fairly straightforward i don't know that we need to go into great detail about it yeah, sure um, um so yeah so yeah you mentioned the byronic element uh certainly uh jonathan strange has a bit of well a lack of focus i would say um 
Yeah, and so, like, you know, he shows up to church late when Arabella was saving a seat for him. Um, seems incapable of sort of finding gainful employment may not be the right word, um, but productive uh, yeah, use of his time. Occupation, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I use occupation not in, like, the need to get money because apparently he doesn't need that um but just in yeah like he's not doesn't spend his time wisely um he's drinking less uh he's willing to go to church more um but uh right even twice a week i i i hardly play cards i drink i drink very very little scarcely more than a bottle a day um, um, and he has no objection to going to church more. He, he doesn't actually do it. Yeah. He just has no objection. To yeah, it. theoretically. Um, and that, and, and, that, and I mean, that's the, the crux of his relationship with Arabella. Is she would like him to find ways to occupy his time, which is, so, I mean, I don't know if you have any insight about, you know, the, the sort of landed gentry at this time. Um. As far as, as, like, like, what he should perhaps be doing. Um, Arabella seems not, like, opposed to him. Is it, like, does she just not want to spend that much time with him? If they, like, get married? Like, is that the crux of the issue? Is it just, like, I don't want you hanging around the house all the time. Um, I'd like you to go out and find your own thing. Right. It's kind of ironic. I mean, not really, because I guess it's period accurate, but um, considering like the role of ladies, you know, at this time, like, you know, women, you know, that's like kind of a, a, a complaint to be had is what did women have to occupy their time? Um, you know, so it's like, I guess just kind of reinforcing the expectations of like, it's not good for you to just hang around the house. Like you have to have a, a pursuit of some kind. Um, or I guess like he has activities. They're just immoral ones. Like maybe it's about taking the time he spends on cards and drinking and putting that to like, maybe she foresees, you know, his sort of ruin if he keeps up this lifestyle, you know? Um, so I'm not sure, I don't know to what extent is it a problem with the pursuits that he has or just his lack of pursuit at all. Um, like, and, and it's, and it's a I bit of I get the sense that it's or, yeah. the latter. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, if he had an occupation, maybe he wouldn't rely so much on, on the drink and, you know, the gambling and everything. Um. So, but yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, I mean, that seems like, I think we, a modern audience might want Arabella to be a little more feminist, you know, or progressive. She's, but it's probably of her period that her main point is like, a man needs an occupation. Like this is a, this is a gender role thing. Um, it's not appropriate for you to just hang around and, you know live like Byron. Um, like he's not respectable. 
I love the the uh, examples he comes up with of things he tried to do. Like I tried to collect fossils at Lyme Regis. Have you been to Lyme Regis? Like it's too rainy. Yeah. Um, but, but establish a business. Right, right. He, to right. Collect He's not even collecting there. them himself. Like what is that? What does that mean? Like what? How many fossils are there, and how long can this business be sustained anyway? Right. right. Um, um, but it doesn't matter because like it's too, it's too rainy. cold or, or too rainy. Uh, yeah. Um, you tried to buy an ironworks, but the smelting room gave him right, right, right. So he has creature comforts. You know, he's he's he has standards of work environment that are you know even owning such businesses. Like he's probably not even the one doing the menial work. Um, but right. just being right. around it. But he is... can't even go visit to check in on right, things because right. the fumes. Right. right. So, yeah. So she goes off to probably get a break from him and uh, and hang out with her brother. She, is it? She, yeah, she's like visiting family. Or right. Like her brother is establishing his parish. Um, and so she's going to go off and help him settle into his new, you know, with his new community and everything. And, um, yeah, and strange. In the meantime, his horrible, miserly father um, dies of his own cruelty. You know, leaving the window open. He dies out of spite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To to spite his servant, he leaves all the windows open, and then because he's like eighty years old, you know, catches cold and dies. Yeah, he dies of exposure, um, right? Yeah. And um, it's terrible, and I kind of feel guilty for laughing, but. Strange's smile as he walks down the hill from the funeral always makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> that kind of big sure. grin on his face of like, well, you know, all his problems are solved because now he can have whatever kind of occupation he wants. Nobody can tell him what he can or cannot do. He has control of the money, the estate, everything. Well, and I mean, kind of, kind of with that, he has a built-in occupation, right? He doesn't, I. I agree with that. I think part of the um, reason why he's so happy is that, like, now he doesn't have to find something. Mm. Something has landed in his mm-hmm. lap. Um, I'll make an excellent landowner. Right? Right? Like, that's what he yeah. said. Um, she will tell me that I'll be bored, but I shall tell her about my plans for almshouses and demonstrate my concern for the plight of the common man. The common man over there is attempting to violently accost the other common man, sir. <laughs> like a very another very British yeah. attitude. Um, right, the common man yeah, just, being Vinculus, who you know uh, announces to him that he is a magician already. Um, you sure. Know, uh, which he seems to take takes at face value. He spent so much time as a landowner. Before he already changes his occupation, right. I, don't I don't know that his focus has been Cured. Yeah. Uh, acquired yeah. here, like by the death of his father. Like he's literally a landowner for about ten minutes before deciding to do something else. Right. <laughs> right. I, I, like, is it even? I don't know if uh, they have like probate court, but like, is the will even like out of you know court at that point? Um, yeah. 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 Right. So, yeah, he he decides that he's a magician. That's going to be his uh, his occupation. And um, uh, Arabella is 
kind of half amused, half a little bit disturbed, like, you know, kind of reading the spells that he gets off of Vinculus, which were the ones that Childermas was supposed to use on Vinculus. Um, you know, she's a little bit disturbed by like the nature of them. Like they're very mean spirited, like how to, you know, expel a person from London or how to like spy on your enemy. Like it doesn't seem like this is a very wholesome crowd. Um, but like, sure. she's sure. also a bit like, I guess, especially before she really believes that he can do anything. She's a little bit amused just by his, the to-do he makes about, like, performing the spell, like, you know, which is where we got our yeah. title, like, oh, take the mirror and get some dead flowers and, like, draw a little quarter on the mirror and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and, also that, and also that it's just different, I think. Like, like there's, there's just nothing, no other, no other people that she knows mm -hmm. that are doing like, this, right? Like, because I, 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 I mean, we don't know much about Arabella yet, but, like, you do get the you sense, get the sense of, like, of like that maybe she's a little bit drawn to just the just sort of the weirdness mm -hmm. of it. Um, um, at least in, at that, least in that, that particular moment, yeah. that seems to be the yeah. case. Right. So yeah, he does the uh, spell to see what his enemy is doing, and of course, it shows Norrell, um, who they in yeah. interpret yeah. as the spirit of a banker. Um, and and do we even know like who he thought his enemy would be? No, I guess not. They don't actually say, right? Like like who who does he think is going to appear? I mean, maybe that's a testament to the fact that they don't think anyone is going to appear. Like maybe they just don't think it's going to work. Um, right. Yeah, I don't he doesn't really say. And then they kind of he looks a bit like a banker, so they just kind of assume like do you owe him money? Like why would this guy be your right, enemy, like, you know? Yeah, does the estate that you inherited 10 minutes ago owe him right. money? Um, and also, like, why does that make you, like, yeah, enemies? Like, I mean. Right, and that's, like. Like, how much money could you possibly owe? Yeah, and, and there's the kind of foreshadowing of the plot. Like, we know these, there's two magicians in England, and they're, there's reference to them being the greatest of friends, but here the implication is they're also the greatest of enemies so kind of setting up the rivalry between the two and kind of hinting that there's tension between them to come mm. yeah um, um but, yeah, but yeah but he and i mean he does magic practically, practically. Mm -hmm. on um, his first try on his first try Right. Um, with instructions, with instructions following, following a recipe. Mm -hmm. uh, and it mm -hmm. works. And, and, like, like, and, like, and, like, indisputably works. Like, not just like, not just like uh, you know, Childermass, like, turning over cards and sort of, like, reading a fortune. Like, where, is it actual magic or is it just, like, sleight of hand or, you know, what's going on? Um, right, but there's, the, the others see it. It's sort of proven that he... Like beyond doubt. Not only, yeah. not only, not only do the others see it, but Arabella is the one who realizes that the magic actually works. Oh, like, oh, that's not your ceiling. Mm -hmm. That's some other ceiling. That's we're actually we're actually viewing a different a different room. Mm -hmm. so, or, uh, 
very uh, very impressive. Um, um, so then the ending so of, of this episode mm-hmm. is um, through sort of the combined uh, suggestion and manipulation of partly Childermas, partly, Childermas, partly draw light, partly the cell. Uh, Norrell decides that he's going to perform a bit of magic for uh, England uh, to see, for London in particular, to see and you know, bear witness to his mm-hmm. own power. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that presents itself as the sort of perfect way to do this is the death of um, Sir Walter Pole. Now, we didn't actually talk about Walter Pole earlier. Um, Norrell had gone to him to sort of solicit his help uh, in, in demonstrating his abilities, but, like, also, like, to put his talents... Um, for use in the war, which we kind of referenced earlier, and um, I'm not entirely clear why Pole agreed to meet with Norrell in the first place. Like it seems to be that he thought he was a theoretical magician, i.e., like a historian or you know, like the the York magicians. Um, which why would that be useful to him? I think he's just being like, polite. Like it's just it's oh just maybe too like. He doesn't meet with him in his office. Like, here's a guy with money? Maybe, yeah, like, here's a, guy, a society person who wants to meet with me. We don't do it in my office. Maybe that's a little that's a little too much. But, like, privately in my own home, sure, you can come over and we can just say hello. And d- doesn't expect anything to come of it. And certainly didn't expect this offer because this would have been a, like definitely it seems a deal breaker like he wouldn't have met with him if he realized they were talking about actual practical magic but i think it's just a courtesy um like a gentleman comes calling and and you you politely sort of agree for just the chat maybe maybe perhaps there is also that line too of how expensive it is to run campaign sure right so maybe this uh, is a, so, this is a backer yeah yeah like and that's not to say that it's not also kind of you know the explanation you just gave but like maybe there's this sense of like okay this guy wants to see me he's got some money like i'll hear him out um but yeah then it just gets too weird like okay he says he can actually do magic i'm sorry i don't think i can yeah you know um, right, you know, talk to you. This is not good for the image. Um, uh, but then his fiance, yeah, and now apparently he's. I mean, there, I guess there's nothing to lose at this point. Although I guess it's not clear. It's not really Walter Pole who has pulled there, right? It would be her parents. Who, sure. Would be the ones to allow her or not. Sure. Um, to bring in the book for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we get the appearance of the man with the thistle down mm-hmm. here. But we don't know that that's the character here, right? Like, like if you were watching this television, the guy who appears mm-hmm. to um, Nora. Mm-hmm. 
who I mean, we know there's the fairy connection or yeah. whatever. Um, here, um, there's no reference to that name. That's true. And I don't know that I would ever like think of him. I don't even know. In the book, I suppose there's probably dialogue that uses that, right? like, oh, it was the man with the thistle right, down right. hair. And maybe we'll get that in the miniseries at some point. I don't point. think but so. Like, I think they refer to him as the gentleman in the miniseries. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. To the extent that they reference him at all, because you're right, like, the characters don't really talk about him much. And so maybe we never no. is named. He's just sort of this, you know, anonymous spirit. It's like, well, Norrell, who's the only one right now who really knows about him, he's not really going to tell anybody that, you know, he doesn't, right. he doesn't want the implication that he didn't do the, the spell casting himself. Um, well, and also he's spoken out against the use of fairy. Right. Right. Or denied that Publicly. it even exists, you know, like fairies are mythological creatures and, and, you know, maybe they're, they're I don't think, I don't think he denies they exist. He says, because I did quote that, I think. Um, I meant to say that they they do not exist in the way stories have them. They're a poisonous race. Their help is always regretted. It is always a heavy price. Mm -hmm. So he does initially say that they don't exist, but then kind of clarifies, like, they're, they're not, the thing that we think of as fairies is not what fairies actually are. Um, so, um, and I forget, I for, I wasn't sure who the woman was that was saying that, but it's in, um, is that Draw Lights? House? No, that's when he's talking it? to, oh, is it it's Walter Pohl, yeah, right? talking to Miss Wintertown's mother, I think. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Because she kind of says like, oh, you're a magician. Where are your fairy servants? Like as if he should just have a fairy ring dancing right, around right, him right, at, right. All, at all times. Um. Yeah. Sure. And he goes out of his way not to like. There's so in the scene in Drawlight's house later is when he's like, when he's when nobody brought up raising her from the dead, and he's like, oh, I couldn't do that, and they're like, why on earth would you think we would suggest that? Like, yeah, we like, never, said, you never said that, and he's like, oh no, you know that that's too dangerous, and he says, um. He starts to say, like, it relies too much on, I mean, it's dangerous, you know, it's, it's, that's the kind of magic that I don't do. So even when right. he thinks of them in company, he goes out of his way not to mention involving, you know, fairy servants. Um, yeah. yeah. So they're, even for a magician, they're um, embarrassing poisonous. poisonous yeah like not they, something it doesn't work out the way right. that you think it's right. done but which he knows but he does it anyway well well so that's a good good thing because does he realize that's what he's doing i think so i don't i i'm not clear well i think in the book he does i'm not clear here that he does um, he seems surprised by the appearance. Hmm. Maybe I'm misreading sure. it or miss seeing it. Um, yeah, I'd have to. But I, maybe I'm I'm 
I, I could be projecting what I remember. So it's from the book. So it's possible that I'm, I'm misinterpreting that too, but. Um, the, the way that I sort of viewed that scene here was that he's completely surprised by the appearance of the thing, but like that it presents himself. See, but I think his, the fact that he stops himself of, he was going to say it relies too much on fairy magic implies to me that he knows that's the only way to do it. Like, there's no magic he can do that will raise her from the dead. The only way is to have a fairy do it. Um, and that's the danger. I mean... Like, the, the danger there is inviting this dangerous other agent into the contract. Um, does relying on fairy magic mean summoning an actual fairy? I, I, I don't... You could be right. Like, maybe that's... Maybe he totally knows it. I, I guess I just read it as he was very surprised when an actual fairy appears and well maybe he's he has a conversation and with maybe him, like all of maybe that. he's surprised that it happens or that it works um or that maybe he wasn't expecting like an actual literal fairy to show up in his like i think he right. knows i think he's aware that he's involving magic that isn't in his control and that has a different source, and that sure. is very dangerous. Now, does he, he... He says the outcome is quite unpredictable. Right. So does that mean that he knows what it's going to look like when he does it? I guess that is open to discussion. Like, it, what does he expect to happen when he, you know, speaks his spell? I guess we don't really know for sure. Well, and so that brings up the question of like, then what is, so does that, so then there's two kinds of magic, really, is what we're talking about, is because there's the, and I, like, so there's the very recipe driven, mm -hmm. like magic, and then there's this unpredictable, presumably fairy magic, although in that sentence he never I agree that's probably what he's right, thinking, but he, but he never actually himself. says yeah. it. Yeah. So there's this very unpredictable magic that's out of the magician's power. Presumably is fairy magic, and so is in fairy's power, but doesn't... Right. Like, it can't be controlled. And so, like, is this a, is this a C.S. Lewis, like, deep magic from the dawn of time and deeper magic from before the mm -hmm. dawn of time kind of thing? Like, um, right. you know... Or the... Um... The old, like, you know, in, in real world, like, magical, like, you know, occult studies or whatever. It's like invocational versus incantational. Like, are you are you sure. enchanting something or are you invoking a spirit that does something? Because, and I think that's like, sure. like, you know, a big difference in, you know, the kind of potential morality of those things. Like, are you using powers sort of innate to you or are you calling on a spirit to do something for you? And that's where I think, like, the danger comes in is, like, what are you calling on? And, right, you know. And how good is your ability to control right. it, you know, and, um, you know, sort of interact with it. And so, because, like, part of that is is then there's this deal that's right, right. like, Noral kind of seals Emma's fate mm -hmm. here. Uh, not only to a specified number of years, but to how many of those years she'll spend mm -hmm. enslaved or, or whatever. 
um, and, also, and also like has her finger lost mm-hmm. or like taken. Um, yeah. So like, and he has no real control over any of that, even though it sort of seems like, but then there's also like, even like the little sort of turns of phrase that, um, you know, if you're thinking sort of fairy, like, like how can these things be used against you later? Like, um, you know, Norrell's like, well, then you won't come back in the fair. And the gentleman is, you know, his reply is you need not ever see me. again." Like, like, well, that's not the same as not coming back. Uh, but Norrell doesn't pick up on it, or it seems not to pick up on it exactly. Um, right. So, like, there's those types of of things where it's like you've you've unleashed this thing and given it some power, and through your negotiations, have sort of left the door open. Mm-hmm. Um, like the rift was sort of left properly. Right. In, right. There's a there's a, there's the the you know, the walls between the worlds are us now like there's a there's a hole that something now knows how to get through like you and you invited me in and now you can't get rid of there's a vampire element to that too um sure yeah yep and also can i just Um, say mark warren how great to see mark warren again after a long time since uh it's been a long time since we talked about love and monsters but Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, anything? I, I mean, I don't. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask if there was anything else that we wanted to cover before we wrapped it up. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have much else to say. Um, I mean, we're, 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 I mean, Emma obviously comes back to life and her finger's missing and she wants to dance and that's all well and good. Um, Norrell seems a little uh, unsure of himself at this point, so uh, that's fine, but his reputation is secure. Um, so we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, where, uh, where he goes from there. Sounds good. See you then. 